It's that time of year again, when your nice hosts take a few weeks off from new episodes. But before we do, we pick a few of our favorites from the last year to heat up in the microwave and serve to you while we're on hiatus. In previous years, each of us pick a few episodes and explain why we picked them. But this year, I picked them all, when Stephen and Mark weren't paying attention. So, this week's nice replay is episode 219, Therapeutic Games with Adam Davis, originally published on my birthday, June 3rd. That was your published on your birthday? It was published on my birthday. Did we, like, get the calendar math on that right? Because now I'm remembering us in some episode saying it was your birthday. Um, I think... I don't remember. But, okay. But listeners can tell us when they listen... <laughs> <laughs> is that why we picked this episode, Ellen? Because it was my birthday? birthday? No. Actually. They can find out the answer to that question <laughs> momentarily. Um, well, maybe that we were we were aware of the fact that it was going to be published on my birthday when we recorded it. But the reason that I picked it for a nice replay is because I thought it was a great interview. It really was. It was. And just the, the topic um, and the expertise that Adam brought to the topic. Yeah. It's a lot of times on the show, we talk about things that, as I hear from guests or from the two of you, I learn a lot about a topic that because we are a game dev show, I generally have some notion of what I'm going to learn. Mm -hmm. And this episode was great because there was a ton of like novel, new, interesting things that I just didn't expect to learn in that episode. It was really, really good. Absolutely. Yeah, it was very, yeah, it was eye-opening. And inspiring. Adam, welcome. Tell us how you got involved in in games, in therapeutic games specifically, um, and a little bit sure. about your company too. So um, my background is actually in drama therapy. So oh. I was a, an actor for many years um, and I was a drama teacher. And then I actually discovered that the kind of work that I was doing using drama, I, I, was, I was teaching you know, after school classes, Saturday classes and things like that. And the, my favorite kids that I worked with were the kids who didn't really want to be there. Um, mm. The kids who were... Who ha- having some struggles, having some troubles, and then I was using drama games and activities to help them understand themselves better and understand each other better and build a cohort together. And then I discovered that what I was really wanting to do was drama therapy. And so then I went to, to graduate school for that. I ended up getting a master's in education with a specialization in drama therapy. I became a classroom teacher for a while. Um, I was a, a fourth grade literacy teacher for a few years. Oh. Um, and then uh, all, all the while, while, while I was in grad school, I was working um, sort of an after school program that was a Dungeons and Dragons group for kids who had some troubles fitting in. Maybe were a little quirky. Um, it was kind of a, a un, unfacilitated group, kind of an adult supervised spot for some kids to get together and play some games. Um, and then I realized then that what they were doing was, you know, taking turns acting out scenes, <laughs> role playing, and with this nice gamification on top of it so that I, I was realizing that what they were doing was very s- easy for me to use the skills and training that we had in, in grad school to learn about, uh, you know, intentional role play, both drama therapy and Dungeons and Dragons have a nice overlay there. So started using the game as I became the game master for that group, realized that Dungeons and Dragons can really be the systematic and intentional use of role play, which is what drama therapy is. And then built uh, Adam Johns and I, the other founder of Game to Grow, we built a, a small two-person organization called Wheelhouse Workshop, uh, which we ran for several years doing therapeutic social skills groups for kids using Dungeons and Dragons. And then we realized that we could do so much more if we were to expand and hire. And uh, we, we transitioned, uh, we closed Wheelhouse Workshop, that uh, small for-profit, and we launched Game to Grow. 
2017. Um, and then now we have 20 something employees. Uh, we are now a virtual because of, of the last 14 months of everything being virtual. We moved our, our groups virtual, which mean we're no longer just serving people in the Seattle area. We're now serving people around the world. We have uh, around 150 players in our uh, tabletop role-playing game groups and our uh, Minecraft-based groups as well. Ooh. That's cool. Uh, let me, I want to just hit on something that you, you uh, about going virtual. And, and, and we were just talking about how we're all trying to get back into the world. Um, how much of the change that you had to make are you, is something that's permanent for the organization? Because I think a lot of people have discovered that once the world gets smaller, it's nice to keep it that way. How is, how, what's been your approach? It's, it's been an interesting thing. So we, we transitioned virtual March of, of last year, um, mm -hmm. March of 2020, when it was, it, when initially it was a triage. We were expecting it to be two weeks. <laughs> we were expecting it to be just a little bit <laughs> exactly, of time. Yeah. You know, we were going to maybe finish out the quarter and then go back to in-person groups at the summertime. And I, I, I had this sort of inherent apology. Like I said, I'm a drama therapist and I believe in taking up space with our physical bodies. And a lot of what we're doing is, you know, interpersonal work, which kind of requires the 3D expression of your facial expressions and your, your, your whole expression of affect and everything. So it was, I was really worried when we moved online, actually, uh, that mm -hmm. it was not going to be as effective. Um, and what we discovered is that, A, COVID, it was extra important for everybody to be social with each other. It was extra yeah, yeah. important that we were continuing services. Um, so that was, you know, a, a wake up call a little bit just to see how scary that time was for everybody. Um, but then what was also the outcome of that was that we no longer were bound by geography. So that meant that mm -hmm. parents no longer had to drive their kids to our groups, which means that um, we can reach people who don't have the same transportation access, maybe. Um, what that also means is that before we had groups in Tacoma, we had groups in Seattle, we had groups in Bellevue or Kirkland area, and we were limited in the groups we could put together by the families who could make it to that location. So now, because we're virtual, we can actually build the cohort of adventurers for a Dungeons and Dragons game. We can build them wherever they are, which is fantastic. So um, part of what we do in a game to grow group is we we build the group of adventurers together because we we take a lot of the peer learning model there. It's not just like Today, class, we're working on eye contact, right? It's uh, we want the players to actually be able to connect with each other, learn from each other, build that social reciprocity with each other. So mm -hmm. we build our cohorts very intentionally. So now our cohorts are not limited to which families can drive to, you know, the game store on Sixth Avenue in Tacoma. They are mm -hmm. who would be best for this cohort. So we have groups that are international um, where, you know, someone in Australia and someone on the East Coast are a good fit together. And so they can be in the same group and learn from each other. and like when I was a kid, we had pen pals, right? We had you know, yeah. cross the country pen pals. It was this wild yeah. experience because you're getting to talk to somebody sort of <laughs> in a different place. And <laughs> mm -hmm. now these kids are getting a chance to like not just talk to each other around the world, but you know, collaborate and build a story together. So it's really been a, a cool thing to see. So part of it, to go back to your question, uh, part of it is we're, we will want to do in-person groups again because yeah. there's something really valuable about being in person, especially because and we can talk about this a little bit too, but the, the struggles of being on a computer and not clicking every single notification that comes across your screen is really difficult mm -hmm. for me, much less, you know, a nine-year-old. So, yeah. um, but I will say we'll always be virtual because we no longer are bound by geography. And so we mm -hmm. basically tripled in size the number of clients we could serve going virtual. Mm -hmm. So like that, that's going to always be there. Uh, we'll also yeah. probably have some in-person groups at the same time. 
Yeah, it's a both and now. So you'll you'll yeah, go back. Yeah. You will not necessarily go back to doing in-person groups. You will reincorporate <laughs> your in-person groups. Yeah, you have yeah. to find a hybrid model that works, which is going to be a challenge, but sounds like it's really going to be worth it. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And and you know, like I said, some some youth were totally integrated. They're digital natives. So they're very comfortable being on a computer. They understand the platforms. They understand how to mute themselves. And that's been a really interesting thing to meet the kids where they're at in a certain way, because a lot of them can fully have a chat conversation and a verbal conversation at the same time, which has Mm. been really neat. So a lot of, a lot of the players in our groups struggle, you know, with uh, switching tasks, you know, they're, they, they, they'll want to do three things at the same time. And the games aren't really set up for that. But mm-hmm. when they can type of like, I, I like your shirt, I can text you. Oh, man, I love that movie. You, you are wearing the same T-shirt that has that character in that movie. I love that movie or whatever. That, that social contact can happen through a chat while it's not actually disrupting the game. Whereas mm-hmm. if we were playing in person and I was the game master describing the scene and someone interrupts me to say, oh, my gosh, I love your T-shirt. You know, Captain America is a great movie and I loved it except for the third one, you know, that would be disruptive. <laughs> but in a chat, yeah, in a yeah, chat yeah. space, um, it's not, and which is a really cool thing to be able to access that and, uh, and yeah. leverage their skill set as opposed to me always, you know, yeah. running the show. You know, that's, that's also a modern idea of, um, of um, governing attention for children. Like what, you know, growing up, like you, you know, like pay attention to one thing and don't be distracted by the, the your Game Boy or whatever the cliche would mm-hmm. be for your parents to, to mm-hmm. complain about, but you're describing a scenario where that's actually like becomes like socially healthy is to do that kind of to engage with the tools that allow you to do it to actually divide your attention in a way that maybe goes against some um, long-standing norms in a way. Right, and and there's there is a way in which you know a chat while a game is happening can be really distracting and they're not mm-hmm. fully engaged, but mm-hmm. if there, if they were trying to listen to me, but all they could think about was, I really want to tell Adam that I love his shirt or whatever, then they're not listening <laughs> to me anyway. But if they yeah. can get that out, right? right I love your right. shirt. We'll talk about it later. Then that, that, that background software on their, in their brain can sort of decrease the stress level and then they can be more fully engaged. So it's a, it's been a really a cool thing. Another thing that I've, I've, it's been pretty fantastic is just the mute feature. muting is muting is fantastic so Mm -hmm. people can mute themselves we have players who have you know some degree of of non-communicative verbal sounds that they make but they can mute themselves fully aware there's they're using the technology to support themselves and in a way to better engage with the other players we have some players who have echolalia you know they'll repeat what other people say Mm -hmm. um and that's you know or they'll have a a, like i said any any kind of non-communicative verbal sounds they're making they can mute themselves still make those sounds still self-regulate with whatever verbal sounds they want to make but they can also fully engage in the social experience of a relational narrative play like Dungeons and Dragons. And it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. been an ex- accessibility tool the way that yeah. I, I thought that moving virtual was going to be more about that being an obstacle to overcome. But it's actually been something that's been so helpful for people to be able to participate more, more fluently. That's oh, amazing. That's cool. Like, I, I hadn't really considered that before, but I, I, I've, I've, I've definitely considered like doing things virtually as an accessibility benefit because a lot of people you know maybe not don't have access to transportation to things to get to in-person events or they're you know they're in a different country or or even city and it's just hard to get there but like it being accessible through the just the tools of virtual communication is really fascinating mm-hmm. yeah it's something i like i hadn't even thought about that's so cool <laughs> i love that 
That's really cool. <laughs> well, and the initial thing that I was thinking of is there are these kind of socially like required or beneficial kinds of interactions that they their shape changes when you move them digitally, you know, when you move them to a digital medium, but the, but the kind of purpose remains the same, but you have to learn how to kind of code switch between the two if you're going back and forth. So the D&D group that I've been with for several years, you know, we moved everything online when the pandemic started and it, we had to, you know, take a, take a session really to think about and talk to each other about how we were going to handle things differently. Like when we're in person, we have kind of a no phones rule. You don't, you know, you don't sit and look at your phone and you click things. If there's something that you need to deal with, you can deal with that, but like, it's not going to be a distraction. And if it is a distraction, people will call it out and say, Hey, you look distracted. Do we need to pause for a bit and give that person some space to deal with whatever's happening? Um, The, that doesn't really happen. I mean, it happens when you move to a digital space, but you can't really tell that it's happening. Um, And there are potentially more distractions because instead of just your phone, you will have like an infinity of windows. Yeah. <laughs> things that are yes. bleeping and flashing at you. Um, but we talked about that when we made that transition and figured out a way just, you know, and committed to each other that we were going to try to keep the same sort of focused culture um, in the digital space as we had in the physical table or in the physical game. Uh, but that's, I mean, that kind of code switching is really beneficial for kids, I think, as well, because they're going to be and that's this is just a matter of a fact of life. They're going to need to be able to do that just like we all are. Um, yeah. But it is really cool. I agree with what Stephen said that it, it didn't occur to me initially that those the digital tools could also be empowering in a way that uh, it's interesting that that can be empowering in a way that maybe it wasn't expected. Mm-hmm. It's it's tough, though, because there are definitely times where you know, we're in a virtual space and, and at first it was really novel to play games virtually and at first it was really novel to have virtual school and then the atrophy wears in when we don't i'm tired of looking at faces and boxes um and there's a whole wide world of technology at my fingertips while i'm sitting here trying to do something so it's been you know a, a an important conversation to have with a lot of our players as well to stay present what does it mean to be present and it's really hard right now for everyone to be present. And that's that was a pre-COVID issue. We have, you know, the access to the entire world in my pocket. Um, yeah. Every time I'm w- watching a movie and I go, oh, my gosh, who, why do I know that actor? I pull out my iPhone, look at IMDb. And, you know, then yeah. I'm looking at the trivia for some, you know, third season of a show that came out 14 years ago. And right then I'm no longer watching my show. I'm no longer hanging out with people I'm hanging out with. And, you know, that's sort of the world we live in anyway. So we also want to set our players up for success there as well by letting them know what the what you mentioned this uh ellen as well the, the idea of like a, a culture what is our table culture going to be um and we want to make sure that uh, the table culture we're creating is one where we're engaged where we're invested and we care about what we're doing because it's sort of a feedback loop if you aren't really participating then you're going to get less you know reinforcement for participating in it right. and then it's going to be easier and easier to pull up whatever sort of Wikipedia page or YouTube channel or whatever. And because yeah. we're all wearing headphones, you know, somebody can literally be watching a YouTube show while we're in a four person, you know, zoom chat or whatever, and no one will know. So right. it's, it's, you know, kind of a, you have to have a little bit of a wake up call sometimes when you see somebody's eyes sort of glazed over looking left to right, left to right, left to right. I, I think you're reading <laughs> something. Mm-hmm. I think you're, I think you're on Wikipedia right now. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I suppose it's 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 more difficult. Yeah, like you said, it's more difficult to determine that when 
you're doing it virtually versus like in person. So it's sometimes easy to hide it in person too. <laughs> <laughs> Kids are masses at that. <laughs> I think it this way. That's because they really want to check Twitter or whatever it is that kids do. What do the kids do these days? Yes. How, how do you do, fellow kids? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassingly, when I was a middle school teacher, I unfortunately got the reputation for being the person who could not tell when kids were on phones. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so that was rough. Yeah. But I turned out okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I, I wanted to ask, like, how... How do these how do these how do these games work? Uh it sounds like they're similar they're tabletop um RPGs, but um like how do you design and craft the games to suit um, to suit your audience here? So what we're what we're most of what we're working on, uh, especially with our youth pro- youth programming, is uh, mm-hmm. social skills groups. So sure. we're working on largely is youth who have for one reason or another or another um, some kind of, of of lagging social skills. So we don't look at any of our participants as being deficient or broken or anything like yeah. that. Really important the way that we approach our, our program here. Um, so when we're when we're trying to support them, we look at it very developmentally. So a lot of youth uh, historically would have access to this unstructured narrative social play, right? Unscripted mm-hmm. play, playground time, right? This mm-hmm. is cops and robbers, whatever kind of playground time. Um, kids don't really have that same sort of access that they did for one reason or another. So a lot of what we're using the game for is trying to build uh, the the capacity to connect with each other and build those meaningful relationships. So that looks like us leveraging the game purely sometimes to have kids enjoy each other's company. And a lot of kids who have been in more direct instruction, you know, social skills training programs, they'll learn scripts. Yeah, they'll learn how to make eye contact. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll learn, you know. I say this, you say this, I say this, and then I get a treat from the teacher. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's very rarely does that turn into, wow, I like social contact now. I'm going to go do that. They learn mm-hmm. what's what they're supposed to do, not why mm-hmm. it should matter to them. So a lot of what we're trying to do is build some sort of intrinsic value in being social to say, wow, other people can actually enrich my life as opposed to cause me anxiety and make me want to stay home. So that being said, what we, the, the, to the layperson, it might look a lot like a tabletop role playing game, right? We don't sure. inject a bunch of therapy into the game. We're actually leveraging the game to get the outcomes that we want. So that's always an yeah. important thing we talk about in our training program. Also, it's like it's not the game and therapy. It's a therapeutic application of the game. You're kind of wearing mm-hmm. one really cool hat. It's a therapeutic game master hat instead of a therapy yeah. hat and a game master hat. Um, yeah. So w- what we're what we're doing there is we're as we're helping them build that capacity to connect with each other. We're helping them build you know their self regulation skills because if you're dysregulated, you're not able to connect with anybody or achieve any sort of interpersonal or intrapersonal goals if you're dysregulated. So we work on uh, regulation, you know, and that's uh, easy to do in a tabletop role playing game because there's dice and sometimes things go well and sometimes don't. And yeah. that's an important opportunity to self-regulate through triumphs and disasters. There's natural mm-hmm. successes, you know, 20 sided, you know, natural 20s where you get really excited and that can be dysregulating and you got to pull yourself back, get focused mm-hmm. again. So we, we, there's some really foundational skills we're working on that are, that are tied into the game that we, we can build very easily. So regulation, perspective, taking um, collaboration, planning skills and like symbolic thinking we talk about pretend play a lot 
because play, I mean, you know this, you all work with games, um, play is important. <laughs> and if the game mm-hmm. doesn't have play in it, then it is not a fun game. It's procedural, you know, it's a, it's a slot machine, right? Um, yeah. What you want to have when we're doing this also is that authentic relational social play that makes them want to keep engaging in it. That's a continuation desire. You want them to lose track of the rules a little bit to, to get excited about the story, not about the you know, the numbers on their piece of paper. So there's lots of yeah. these different sort of skills yeah. we're working on as we're working on working with these kids or we have adults too. Um, we, uh, we're, we're really wanting them to be more comfortable in their own skin, more, more socially confident as they're building those relationships. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So how do you, as, uh, the sort of the, um, the, the, when you, uh, make this application of, of the game, how do you monitor, uh, how do you take notes? How do you uh, track progress? Um, and how is that different from normal therapeutic approaches? So um, we do take notes. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, <laughs> a, a game master should always take notes. Otherwise, they lose track of what their storyline is, especially because, you know, there was times when I was running, I think, seven games a week. Um, so wow. you got to take really, really, really good notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then, but we, we also have regular check-ins with parents. Um, mm-hmm. so the, the, or wherever the caregiver might be, um, sometimes with the player themselves to talk about their goals. So we have an intake process before we get started that looks very similar to a lot of other more traditional therapeutic interventions where we talk about goals, we talk about mm-hmm. obstacles, we talk about, um, what kinds of things the player or the family wants to work on for them. And then we check in with them regularly to talk about those outcomes. We don't, because it's a very new field. Um, it's not like there's a, a pre-made, you know, inventory to look at, look at here. Right. We've right. built in you don't some have metrics. Some, exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, there are some, right. But a lot of them, a lot of the metrics are also built on sort of a discrete skills training approach, sure. which mm-hmm. the, I mean, any teacher sort of knows this. If you're assessing for something, then you're, then the teacher is going to teach to the assessment a little bit too, mm-hmm. right? Which is yeah. not necessarily the way that we want to instill the love of learning in our students also. Right. Um, speaking, spoken as a teacher who had to struggle with standardized, standardized <laughs> testing a bit oh, much. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was guilty of that too, teaching to the assessment sometimes instead of teaching to the spirit of the subject so yeah. the the what we're doing right now we actually um are working on some research because research is so important because this is a pretty new field um we've been doing this for about a decade but and people have have done it here and there for a couple of decades but we haven't really had research on it so we're doing some research right now with pre and post surveys we're trying to build that what what it looks like to do this research effectively without it turning into, um, you know, simulation training where we're just using scripts to build behaviors that then mirror a lot of more traditional, you know, direct instruction kind of uh, social skills programs. That's not what we want to emulate. Um, but there's great research on those because it's easy to measure eye contact and, you know, did they shake the hand of the person? Those kinds of things are easy to, mm-hmm. easier to measure than, uh, you know, feedback loops and, and confidence. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, those are observable actions. What you're looking for is um, something like you mentioned earlier, intrinsic. You're looking for an internal state that you're hoping the players, the participants are going to achieve. And there's always that, I mean, subjectivity in that when you're asking people to report exactly. that. Yeah. So how, do you, how right. do you see what that internal, what the, the external effects of that internal state might be? I could see how that would be really uh challenging to you know construct research around yeah and that's true for any kind of therapeutic research it's just that we're both doing that 
difficult therapeutic research, but also using a modality that is, if anything, barely out of the satanic panic. So we're trying to <laughs> have a, a couple yeah. of uphill, right, right. uphill battles to push for this kind of kind of research as well. But we have, you know, we have parents who will email us and they'll say, oh my gosh, my child like sat with us at dinner and they normally get their tablet out or they normally like wolf down their food to go back to their room, but they sat with us at dinner and told us all about the story that's happening. in their game. Oh, and my wow. child has that's never cool. sat through dinner and talked to us about the things that they cared about. So those kinds of outcomes, right? That's, that's an uh, engagement with other people an excitement to share their internal world, a belief yeah. that other people care about their internal world. Those kinds of things is what we really get excited about. And it's yeah. that, mm-hmm. that, that email we get from those parents is great testimonials, right? But that's not the thing that'll get the, the big name organizations to put the stamp of approval on this. We have to get that sort of clinical research to do that. So we're, we're yeah. trying to do yeah. a lot of things at the same time in terms of getting that research accomplished. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and it made uh, made more difficult by the fact that to create that authentically rewarding gaming experience, you can't structure it. I mean, if you're letting people, if you're letting players control the narrative, you know, and influence the narrative, then it's, you're not controlling that variable. And so one session is going to be very different from a session, even if you're running the same campaign and same age groups and so on and so forth. So... Wow. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) I I believe you. I remember as as a, thank you so much. As a teacher, um, there was, you know, different, different uh, approaches. So where some, some schools prided themselves in the fact that if you walk into this fourth grade teacher's room and this fourth grade teacher's room on the same day, they're going to have the same basic lesson plans and the same structure. And that was, that meant that, that all the kids were getting the same treatment, which is, you know, great. That's a great goal. But the problem is, is if you go into the, if, if, you know, you have more of the dystopian lens on that, then you see both teachers kind of want, 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 because they're, mm-hmm. scri- they're scripted. They're not actually engaging with their, with their students. And that's right. a, the thing we want to avoid too. We don't want to systematic, you know, make the manualized treatment so procedural that no matter which group you go into, you're getting the same exact setup. We, you want it to be relational. That's a big part of what makes our, modality so important it is it is all about relationships between facilitators and the players but also with the players and each other and if that becomes too procedural and it becomes a turn-taking endeavor uh, then we lost the magic that makes it powerful in the first place yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i was going to ask about uh how parents uh deal with what they may expect which is sort of progress reports and 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 more data perhaps uh versus the, the approach where it has to be more uh, intrinsic, but but you, the story you were saying about the the child at dinner, it it um, maybe it just reflects me not being a parent. But uh, do you find that parents are really keyed into being able to see the progress, or do you find, or maybe a mix of this? Do you have people coming to you and saying like, I need to know more about what's happening. I don't see this, like you know, uh, be more reassured about the process of it. Like, um, how hard is it to explain it to them? Basically, we get both. Um, if mm-hmm. a, if a parent or a caregiver is a gamer themselves, if they have ever played, you know, a good game of a tabletop role playing game, they understand it because they had a personal experience of connecting with other people in this sort of safe and semi structured environment. Um, if the parents have no familiarity with it, then it's a little bit more of an explanatory thing. We've actually done workshops for parents to learn how to play the game so that they will have mm-hmm. the actual experience and will know what it, the game looks like so they can ask the right questions to build that relationship with their with their kids as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of parents do, you know, this is true regardless of the demographic we're working with or 
any kids, <laughs> but parents will say, how was school today? Fine. What did you do? Nothing. Right. That's the same for our groups as well. So that's not yeah. that's not unique for teenagers to not be that verbose with their parents. So mm-hmm. it is important for us to talk to the talk to the parents. And we have, you know, so we, we run our groups in 10 week cycles. So it's a quarter. We have four quarters throughout the year. Yeah. And about mid quarter, we like to check in with the parents. And that's oftentimes an opportunity for them to give to ask questions and to make some observations and update those goals or whatever, because mm-hmm. sometimes goals might be early on sibling conflict, right? So then we want to build some regulation skills. We want to build some perspective taking skills, et cetera. But sometimes those things change. Yeah. Those, mm-hmm. those things, obviously, I mean, one, one of the players, we, we work with players for a very varying length of time. Sometimes uh, they come for 10 weeks and then they move on. Sometimes they come for quarter after quarter after quarter. So we have some players we've played with for years and years at this point. And some, you know, start off with an IEP at school. They need certain kinds of supports at school. And then those IEPs are no longer necessary because they've, they've built some of those. And you know, we're not the only organization working to support them. Sometimes they're also an individual counseling. Sometimes there's uh, medication and all kinds of others, other support systems that might be supporting their growth. So I can't take all the credit, um, but we do have some, you know, youth who no longer need IEPs, right? And we'll, we'll be working with their their caregivers at home, sometimes also teachers to, to, to share some language, to talk about that. Um, and that that conversation is always really important. So we never want to skip over that, especially now that we're all virtual. We used to have parent contact in in-person groups because parents would drop drop off and pick up or whoever the caregiver was. So you could have yeah, that sort right. of time also to say things went really well today, you know, that little little check-in sort of camp counselor style check-in or check-out mm-hmm. kind of process. Um, and now that we don't have that anymore, it's extra important that we have the phone calls or the you know video chats with parents to talk about progress and, and realign on goals. Like I said, sometimes sometimes great progress happens and sometimes it doesn't. And we don't want to check in about that as well. Um, can I ask about the the actual like mechanics of these games? Yeah. I, I am a mechanics-driven <laughs> developer. <laughs> and I would like to know mm-hmm. like how how like how do you, how do you, I mean, I've played some tabletop <laughs> RPGs, but I haven't played a lot, so I don't have a lot of experience with it. Um, how do you like play these games? Um, so it's a great question. <laughs> and that's one we, we answer a lot. We, we have a, we have a, a training program um, where we bring in people, some of which who have never played before and sure. some that have played for years. And so right. it's kind of important mm-hmm. to shoot, shoot for the middle sometimes as we explain it. Um, the, the way that I like to explain tabletop role-playing games, especially to people who have never played it before or have very loose, loose concepts for it is to describe what it is not. So a lot of people don't really know what, what a game like Dungeons and Dragons is. So the first thing I always have to say is it's not a video game. Right. Pause for a moment, make sure that sinks in. It's not a video game. There's no screens, right? It's a, other mm-hmm. than now everything's on screens, but you know what I mean. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's, not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a computer game. It's not, a, it's not a video game. Um, the other thing that makes it unique is that players are not working against each other. Right. Players are on the same team. Uh, it's really important that to, uh, especially when I'm talking to parents or teachers or other sort of stakeholders, that this is a game in which the players are working together to achieve a common goal. But that common goal is also not points. They're not trying to achieve some sort of arbitrary win condition. They're at the goal of this game is to work together to tell a good story. So yeah. it's a collaborative role-playing story game. And another cool thing about this game is the, the players aren't moving tokens around a board. They're not playing cards out of their hand. They're imagining a story together where they are in control of one character. And that one character has a full um, backstory oftentimes. It has a rich history, unique skills, experiences that they don't have. So this game is also an opportunity to, for them to work on some 
uh, you know, some perspective taking skills because their character is not them. It's kind of them, but it's also not. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the other exciting part about this game is it's not just like sitting around a table making up a story. There's dice and there's rules. There's a formal participation structure that guides the process. Um, the other important thing that makes this game so different than other types of games is right now it's just a collaborative role playing story game of chance. Uh, there's there's also a game master and the game master's responsibility is to to set up the game, to describe the in-game scenarios that the characters are in. Then they have to talk amongst themselves and decide what their character will do to overcome that obstacle. So the game has this really nice sort of asymmetric structure where the game master says, your characters are walking through a deep and dense forest. They finally come to a clearing to see that there is a massive ravine um, that stretches out for miles in each direction. They're questing after some very important treasure on a treasure map that may save the world. But they have to cross this ravine first. And you, as you, your characters, because I'm the game master describing this to you, as your characters come to this ravine, you see that there is a, a, a single bridge, a rope bridge, kind of wobbly. In fact, it looks pretty unsafe, but it's the only way across this ravine. What do you do next? And that is like the magic word or the magic phrase of a tabletop role-playing game. What do you do next? Because yeah. <laughs> then that's the game master handing to the players the narrative control, right? What are your characters going to do? There's, yeah. there's a clear obstacle, right? There's a bridge. It's rickety. We know we have to cross it. Kind of a, you know, a little bit of creative problem solving thing. Do we reinforce the bridge? Do we walk carefully across the bridge? Do we climb down and then traverse the rocks and then climb back up? Well, it depends on what our characters are good at. Depends on if we can work together to overcome this obstacle. How are we going to, to overcome that? And then the story, you know, proceeds linearly. It's a, it's a story game. So, yeah. you know, they cross the bridge. Okay, you, you're questing after this X. You find a cave system. Okay, now, you're, now you're, you're going deep inside the cave. There's now, you're in a dungeon where there's traps, there's puzzles, there's monsters. You have to overcome that. Maybe there's some denizens of this cave system who you need to negotiate with because you're lost and they know the way. Right. Yeah. So this the story evolves over time and the, the choices the players make you know, make a difference. If right. they meet some cave denizen and they threaten them instead of asking nicely, well, then that person might have spread the word about these, you know, heroes, air quotes on heroes traveling through this cave system, threatening people all day. Well, then the, the next you know, character they meet in this cave system may be less forgiving of their of their attitude, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is. Extremely good <laughs> because I, I think that <laughs> the way you're describing it is really cool because it makes that's something that I feel like I, I mean, I forget sometimes as a game developer how powerful games can be in the way you're describing it and all the things that like you're able to that that kids or adults or whoever is able to accomplish while they're playing this game in the skills that they're learning and they're training and they're improving as they're mm -hmm. doing that is so important to hear. Um, and it, it even when you're like, even if you've played these games for a long, you know, for all of your life or whatever, you don't, it's hard to remember or understand all the, the ways that it has affected the, like your, yeah your, your ability to exist in the world. And I think yeah. just the way you've described that is so powerful. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. so good. <laughs> it's uh it's like a, it is kind of a, a, a standard for everyone pitch for yeah. a tabletop, but, but in the context of our discussion. Yeah, it it has a it has an it's that context is so fascinating. Right, because as you describe it, I'm like, yeah, I played a tabletop, I I get all these things, but then every time you you add another detail, I'm like, oh, but in this context, wow, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. so let me ask you then, how important is it to you? Because this does seem like a perfect tool. How important is it to you to basically uh, to not make the special therapeutic version of this game? How important it is for characters to uh, create their characters the same way for the dungeon master to 
enforce the rules in the same way they might expect their friends to when they play outside of this setting? Or do you provide um, affordances for this for the setting because your game masters are your staff and maybe some of your uh, players would have difficulty with character creation or uh, some of the other more um, uh, difficult, uh, more fiddly aspects of a game like this? So an important part of the way that our game masters at game to grow facilitate this program is that it, it looks and should feel very much like a game. It should be fun. It's not it doesn't turn into, you know, the like I said before, the a sort of adult imparting wisdom on the young folks. Right. Um, what's what's important about this process, though, is it is very scaffolded mm. and youth and adults both kind of get it. It's it's OK. I, this is true in educational research. Also, if you if you provide scaffolding to your to your students, to your players, to your your constituents in whatever context, that scaffolding serves them to actually get the kind of growth that they need. But also, they tend to understand understand when that scaffolding is applied to other people. So, I have some groups where, um, in in the in the game context, they're on a barge, and this barge was heading down the river, and they had to stop the barge because it was about to plow through a dam or something like that. And uh, I had my, my players were all on the barge and it was like, sort of like a ferry. We have a lot of ferries out here in the Pacific Northwest. So they're all very familiar with ferries. And so we're on yeah. a ferry um, barge ferry thing. And um, two of the players want to go get into the captain's quarters to, to, you know, turn the ship, but the captain's door is locked. So I'm having them roll to see if they're and, and plan strategically about how they're going to get inside the captain's quarters. Um, yeah. Do you have a key? No. Okay, you're going to pick the lock. You're going to go find someone who has the key and steal it. What's the what is your linear linear sequencing here to do the planning? Because I, what I want from them is to coordinate together. They're working together to figure out how to get inside this captain's quarters. And some of that might be some frustration tolerance. I'm saying, oh, the barge is getting closer and closer to that dam. You better go yeah. quickly. So I'm yeah. working on that regulation. I'm wanting them to do some collaboration with each other, do some logical linear sequencing, um, some imaginative thinking about where could this key possibly be, all of that. My other player, who was, uh, um, you know, in a different place on his on his uh, cognitive development as well as his uh, play development as un- being familiar with the game, yeah. he said, I'm going to cause a distraction so that they can get in the door, which is already some really important relational identification that they're doing this thing and I'm going to do something else to support them. Yeah. So I said, okay, how are you going to cause a distraction? And he said, I'm going to pretend like it's somebody's birthday. Okay. Sing happy birthday to them. Yeah. And I said, awesome. Um, are you going to go get a cake out of the ship's galley? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, awesome. You find a cake and you come out and you sing happy birthday with the cake with candles on. it. And that was me not needing to go, okay, linear sequencing. Do you know how to make a cake? Why do you think there'd be a cake in the galley? I'm not doing any of that right mm-hmm. here. I'm saying, oh, you're, you are building on the other person's idea. You're creating a, a distraction and you have a creative way to create a distraction. It's a birthday party. Awesome. So yeah. he describes how his character comes out of the galley with a birthday cake and is singing. And I said, oh, there is a, like, there's an older lady there on in the, in the ferry who thinks, you know, you're doing this for her. And then I, as the game master start role-playing this old lady who's so excited that that it's her birthday's being they remembered her birthday on the ferry yeah. and then that takes oh. you know 10 minutes of just silly happy birthday moment right and none of that is a, is dungeons and dragons none mm-hmm. we're not rolling mm-hmm. dice we're not i'm not saying make a charisma check any of that right yeah. so what i'm doing there is building that social relationship with that player but also while this is happening the other two players are extra successful 
getting into the ship's captain, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the wheelhouse, because this distraction has happened. The, the captain comes out and he's singing happy birthday and his key is hanging right there from his belt. It is really easy for them to grab the key because <laughs> nice. he's singing happy birthday. Um, and yeah. th- that, that moment, those, those players that were getting in the, in the captain's quarters never said, hey, you didn't make him roll. Hey, you didn't right. ask him all the logical sequencing questions. And all of that is me making sure my my style and the way we tra- train our game masters is it's, it is scaffolded. It is very mm-hmm. developmental. We are meeting yeah. those players where they're at to support yeah. them and get excited about what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, is that's, amazing. That's great. I, th- <laughs> I think uh, dungeon masters are always advised to you are on the player's side ultimately, right? You want mm-hmm. them to have a good time. You want them to win. Mm-hmm. And those frustrations are so that the, the victory is always sweeter, not so you could kill them with orcs. Um, right. And, right. and so, yeah, like if you had made the, the, the galley door locked, like that's not helping anybody, right? Even though right. it might be a logical <laughs> thing, you might want to lock up the cakes on this, on this ship. Um, and right. yeah, the, the, these games have so many tools and it's so that you can really make completely different scenarios or different contexts and it doesn't feel discordant. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. Right. Hey, Ellen, um, a, a little birdie told me that it's your birthday. It's my birthday. June 3rd is my birthday. Well, happy That's birthday. Awesome. Happy Thank birthday. You. So we thought birthday. we'd take this this little part of the show and let you do whatever you want. It's your birthday. What do you want us to talk about? What do you want us to tell listeners? I, you could, we could just like run some audio of me just eating some moist cake. <laughs> Uh, is gross. There, do we have that but on sure. standby? No. <laughs> That's disgusting. Um, no, actually, I think what I would like to do is share a little bit of, of, of just heartwarming feedback we got through the feedback form um, because it's a really good birthday present. And, you know, it's it's my birthday on June 3rd. We're recording this a few days earlier. So this is like an earlier birthday present to me. And it's okay, great. Okay. So I wanted to just read it to everybody. So you all feel good like I feel good. Even if it's not your birthday. Okay, so here's what they said. I love the show. It's been a great way to engage my brain with game dev and adjacent topics from a different perspective. Hearing other people hash out ideas, talk through trends, and discuss design choices is super fun, useful, and provides a service that just isn't possible to perform myself. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. So kind. I I don't know, like... I'm really glad that this person wrote this piece of feedback because it's a good reminder to me that just like participating in the show and coming and talking to you guys every two weeks is is just so critical critical for keeping me motivated in game dev. Even though I'm like never am going to be able to put as much time to it as I want to because I always want to put more time into it, even if I'm putting yeah. all the time into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's really motivating for me and hearing feedback from listeners like this is also. Um, really encouraging. Yeah. So, thank you. Yeah, it makes yeah. doing the show worth it. But we are on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> this was supposed to be about the feedback form, Mark. <laughs> we, we got it's we got quotas birthday. to hit, Ellen. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> oh, right. I made all that up. <laughs> <laughs> the website is nicegames.club slash feedback. Please tell us your thoughts. Or wish Ellen a happy birthday. Yes, please. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> Uh, 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Do you ever have players who, who sort of try to peek through the curtain and try to suss out what you're doing and, and maybe challenge you a little bit on some of that stuff? Do you mean as, uh, as we're using the game intentionally? Yeah, like do you ever have a player who says, hey, you didn't make him roll to unlock that door? Um, sometimes, but most of the time it's when they want to get a spotlight. So if, if we do a sort of a sort of a um, functional analysis around this, which is another thing we talk about in our training is why, what is the motivation for engaging in that kind of behavior? Yeah. So if the player says, Hey, you didn't allow, you know, do that. Well, that's not what it's about. That's, it's not about lack of equality there. It's that that player wants to feel successful. That player wants to feel equal. That player wants to maybe have a spotlight that they overcome, they overcame this challenge. The other player didn't even have to overcome a challenge. Well, maybe what I need to do there is make sure that player who I did have roll the dice and do all that, I celebrate their triumph because yeah, maybe they sure. feel they don't feel celebrated enough. So it's really important to, to look at not just the behavior, but the motivation behind that behavior. Yeah. And most of the time, if we can do that accurately and support the player in getting their needs met, however we can best support them to do that, those kinds of um, player player conflicts fade away more, more. Mm-hmm. They don't always, right? Sometimes we do have to have other strategies, but oftentimes that, yeah, that yeah. dissolves a bit. That's good. That just reminds me of like feedback, just how you take feedback in it when you're, play, you know, playtesting a game or something like that. Like people will give you feedback and stuff, but that's not necessarily that that feedback might not necessarily lead you to understanding what the motivations behind that feedback are. And not necessarily what um, what they're saying is necessary. It may not necessarily be the problem. It might be a, a, a symptom of the problem. Mm-hmm. Like you're describing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so do you have players? I know that when I a game when I'm a game master I am like I don't want any of my players to talk to me I want them to talk to each other but a lot of but that's difficult right because you're the one who's supplying all the scenarios um is that a unique challenge for you because you're dealing that's essentially your goal is is to engage these social interactions with each other um but how do you make it more advantageous or more appealing to a player to scheme with their their party members rather than engage you in the in the challenges so it it totally depends. <laughs> There's a lot of, lot of questions I'm going to answer with it totally depends. Um, it totally <laughs> <Right>. depends. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so if, if I'm really trying to help them talk to each other, I will say, talk to each other. Don't talk to me. You guys make up a plan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it can, it can like, just be that simple. Everybody's, everybody's trying to talk to me right now, but you guys are going to be more successful if you work together. So figure out a plan to work together because you can't have four people all trying to do different things at the same time. It's really hard for me as a game master also yeah. to do that. It's way easier for you all to make a plan and then report back to me. 
Um, and so I sometimes it's as simple as that <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. brand new players, just to go back to that bridge crossing example from earlier, they, you get to a rickety bridge. One player is like, well, I'm going to cross the bridge, but I have high decks. Another player is like, I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so um, what what I want to do then is say, OK, everybody look at your character sheet. Um, look at maybe what how you can work together to cross this bridge. Everybody cross this bridge successfully like, like what are your unique skills and abilities and I'm, I'm like leveraging the game at that point right because they're mm-hmm. maybe not so effective at it but sometimes i yeah. also will sort of throw out the the mechanics of the game sometimes and build in opportunities for collaboration collaboration is one of mm-hmm. the main goals we want and you know collaboration is not cooperation and collaboration mm-hmm. is not compromise we talk about this a lot in the training program too like okay um parents and teachers oftentimes say like you two need to compromise and most of the time, compromise means you both need to give up just enough of what you want to not have conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like hardly a goal <laughs> we want to set up to like th- have a social, uh, thriving social life. Um, but uh, cooperation is the same thing, right? Cooperation is sometimes like, okay, you're going to do 50%. You're going to do 50%. You can mostly ignore each other, but you show up on presentation day and you have, you're going to do an okay job in your group press project, right? Like that's mm-hmm. – yeah. Fine, especially in some work environments, you have to learn to just put in your time, do your 50% and then you clock out. But that's also not what we want out of a game like this. We want collaboration and collaboration means you're actually building on each other's ideas, which is yeah. also, you know, you're able to build more than you could on your own. So I had a, a group recently where um, the end of the previous session, sort of mid combat Dungeons and Dragons game where there's a high speed boat chase because I oh. totally have speedboats in my dungeons and dragons game. i love this who cares yeah this magical it's a magical rotor right it's a it's yeah. a speedboat. So anyways it's, it's mm-hmm. turning into a high speed boat chase and um uh, i asked them as a part of our check-in process i said like did everybody describe a time you successfully collaborated with somebody else and a lot of them said i'd never successfully collaborated before so then what i did to start the day is i said okay here's what collaboration is collaboration is building on each other's ideas to do more than you could do by yourself so we then like one step at a time said, okay, you, this, this guy on the speedboat is going as fast as he can. And you, your goal here as a group is to get the magic item that he stole and, and secure it and, and, you know, blah, 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 use it to prevent the rise of the Lich King. And mm-hmm. the, um, they, so they, they kind of work together, right? So it was, we have to stop the boat. We have to get the guy and we have to make sure that we protect the item. So one of they basically said, okay, well, my character ha- can cast this this spell to blow up the motor on the back of the boat, and then another player said, okay, my character can can restrain the guy who's on the boat, keep him from jumping into the water. Yeah. And then another player said, well, I have a damage spell I can do to him to you know knock him unconscious. And some other players like, why well, I, I can actually jump from boat to boat and grab the item before it falls in the ocean. In that moment, that's not one person doing you know everything themselves, which is an important sort of teachable moment there too we can't succeed at everything by ourselves right. and then we procedurally did you know describe that very cinematically of this moment like the avengers all working together you know you've, you've got people with mm-hmm. disparate skills actually is a super great thing about fellowship games like D is that they can't do everything themselves so yeah one person laser blasts that motor somebody else makes a spectral tentacle appear from the void to grab this goon who's escaping from this thing somebody else shoots a dart you know, like Hawkeye, right? With his dart from a great distance to hit the yeah. guy and knock him unconscious. Yeah. The last guy has moth wings and can jump and grab the magic pommel handle before it falls into the ocean. And the last one is an expert rower. So they row really fast with another boat. Oh, the boat <laughs> and everybody can jump back. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So they got the item. 
Yeah, I'm riveted. I'm like, I need to know how the outcome right, right, right. is. Yeah, <laughs> good. I was, yeah. I was, I was leaning forward, like, okay, but did they get it? Did they get it? They got the pommel of the sword. They still need to get the the hilt and the blade, but they got the pommel. Okay. Okay. Oh, man. Tune in next week. <laughs> this is such a fantastic um, example of like of game based learning, really, because the mechanics are this canvas that allows you canvas is a terrible analogy, but the, the mechanics allow you to zoom in and zoom out and flex to the needs of the player. And when you were talking about like the need, um, the skills that your dungeon masters um, need to have in order to, you know, to effectively facilitate these sessions, that's, that's good DMing across the board, right? It's just the overall goals and, the metal goal, the meta goals of your session are going to be slightly different. So, like every game master, every dungeon master, if you're going to run a really great session, you gotta you gotta know your campaign, you gotta know your rules. You have to be able to stretch the rules when you need to. You need to be able mm-hmm. to you know stick to your guns and really stick to rules as written when you think it's appropriate for the game. And you need to know your players really well and what each player wants to get out of the gameplay too. So, um, I just I think it's a fantastic example of, of game based learning because the mechanics directly support the the goals that you have and the skills that you're trying to develop. That's so cool. Yeah. And I really hope they get the rest of the device. <laughs> <laughs> so when thinking about mechanics, um, I want to ask about kind of one of your more recent projects at Game to Grow, which was this critical core Kickstarter that you guys launched and it it I'm curious about, first of all, you know, what it is, if you explain it to our listeners, maybe what it was like to to launch that on Kickstarter. And now, because we've had these conversations about like how mechanics align with the, the desirable skill building, I'm curious what went into that, uh, the game design for Critical Core that um, that was intentional around maybe creating those moments where people could practice those skills. So that's a lot. Have at it. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with sort of the, the origin story. So... Um, like I said, uh, I've been doing this uh, for about 10 years, right? The intentional use of tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. And we've done presentations for therapists. We were the keynote presenters at the Washington Association of Marriage and Family Therapy to talk mm. about the systematic and intentional use of tabletop role-playing games. And we can talk about what this looks like. I can I can describe stories and tell things, and, and the therapists in the audience were like, yes, 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 I want to do that. Tell me how to start. And I said, okay, have you ever played tabletop role playing games before? And they said, no. Okay, <laughs> well, hmm. So what we realized is that it's actually really difficult to mm-hmm. learn all of the skills to be able to do the kind of work that we do at Games to Grow. So um, what we wanted to do was create a beginner's box, basically. It's a beginner's box for therapeutic role playing games. So because it's difficult to learn a game and then learn a game as a game master and then right. become a game master who's a good game master and then become a good game master. For sensitive populations, and then become a good yeah. game master for a sensitive population to achieve an outcome. There's lots of steps along the way to yeah. get there. So we wanted to sort of cut out the middleman a little bit and uh, and jumpstart that. So critical core is that it, it is that that was the goal we had to, to, to set off is is not to create something that's that's just a, a adapted and accessible to a neurodivergent population, but also to brand new game masters, some some of whom have never played before. So mm-hmm. the game is actually built on the open gaming license of the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Cool. So a lot of it, it looks very similar to the asymmetric structure we talked about before. Game master says a thing, 
players get to hopefully talk amongst themselves <laughs> to decide what their characters will work, work to do collaboratively. Um, mm-hmm. And then they tell the game master what to do. It's very, it's very similar structure. It's set in a high fantasy world, much like a Dungeons and Dragons game is. Uh, we took a lot of uh, intentionality with our world design and some of the art representation in the game because tabletop role-playing games are built on a really problematic history of racist tropes and sexist tropes. Yeah. So yeah. we wanted to work really hard to make sure that that was not something that we were perpetuating in, inside critical core. Um, and what's, so what's inside the box is a couple of different things. One of them is the game master's guide, which is the rule set. And that is a rules light uh, tabletop role-playing game. That's sort of similar in a lot of ways to a, to a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, a couple of ways that it's different is we took out character creation entirely. So all the characters are pre-made characters. You choose between the eight characters. And that is really because as it is designed for brand new players and brand new game masters, they've never played before. So character creation implies that you know why those choices are meaningful. Sure. But if you don't know why those choices are meaningful, then it's anxiety inducing and laborious. (laughs) So um, we we just cut the whole process out. If you've played Critical Core, uh, the game... Uh, long enough, then you might want to transition into a more rules-rich game. It's a very rules-light system, so you might maybe you, you play this game, you realize you love tabletop role-playing games, maybe it's time to play a you know, game like Pathfinder, Dungeons & Dragons, or any of the new games that are out now. Um, that's great. And you can still, what I, the way that I described the game-to-grow approach, the game-to-grow method to therapeutically applied role-playing games is system agnostic. It requires the game to have that asymmetric structure, but it doesn't require high fantasy. It doesn't require a D20. It just requires the narrative sharing um, of a game master and their players. So the game, the, the box kit of Critical Core has that game master's guide with the rules light D&D-like system. It also has a facilitator's guide. And that's where like the approach of the game to grow method is put into a, a linear prose where I can say, here's what the structure of a session looks like. Uh, here's how to support anxious players. Here's what it looks like to scaffold the way that I described that, you know, fairy scene, all that stuff is in the facilitator's guide to help Mm -hmm. the game masters understand that it's not about the rules. It's about the play. And then the, the third part, uh, other than the dice and stuff in the box is, uh, the, uh, modules, the stories that we built into the core, uh, critical core system. Um, the module design is very unique in that it, we embrace the linear narrative structure of the game where a lot of tabletop role playing games are like a sandbox world where you can go poke around and see where the adventure awaits you. This is a linear structure. So it is mm-hmm. a narrative arc. It has a beginning, middle and end. It's more like a choose your own adventure story, except for we build a lot of um, improvisation tools into the game. So the game masters can let the players, you know, share in the narrative control. Uh, but the, every, every module has encounters that are a two page spread. So the game master doesn't have to flip through the books. They can open the open the book to a two-page spread, see what the encounter is, see what the challenge is, see how best to support the players. So we have also, I, I mentioned earlier, I was rattling off the outcomes we want to have for our players. Um, we actually codified that system, what we call the core capacities. So mm-hmm. the core capacities mm-hmm. are, um, it's kind of maybe if you're a teacher, it might remind you of Common Core. It's got the sort of um, nested structure of there's the, the higher level, maybe regulation. And then the sub skills within regulation might be like dealing with other people, might be uh, stress, uh, high stress. Um, it might be uh, dealing with triumph as opposed to just disaster. And so every single encounter in the game is tied into one of the core capacities. That's good. That's cool. Yeah, I think that like, yeah, having I think what you were describing, like all of the different steps you have to get to get to a point where like you are 
an effective uh, GM in this space is is good. So having that like intro level game to start you off to get you in the mindset of that is very mm-hmm. very good to have. Because I know like I've DM'd a game literally I think one time, <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. I did fine. But like it would be helpful to know all of those skills ahead of time and like having a nice um, a nice base to like to 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 g- grab on to and be able to use that as a guide. Um, I think is very very effective um methodology to you know to get people engaged in that way mm-hmm. and the goal the goal was very much to set up something that game masters could use even if they had sort of graduated out of the game system sure so the game itself is only one of the three components of it right but the facilitator's guide the tools there is something that you can be able to play use that with dungeons and dragons use that with kids on bikes or any of the games that are out there now yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what about the process of, of taking that uh, concept, that product, and bringing it to Kickstarter and who you're promoting it to and how do you get it in people's hands and <laughs> how, do you, how do you gauge people's feedback and all of this stuff that comes from launching a product? Um, so that was a new thing. <laughs> so the Game to Grow, the game to grow team uh, was myself, a, you know, the teacher and uh, drama therapist. Adam Johns is a a uh, couple and family therapist. Um, none of us had project management or product management experience at all. Um, so at first we, um, we had an idea. It was like, if you build it, they will come. We just put it out there. Um, we actually was, a, we partnered um, uh, for the Kickstarter specifically with an organization called McGarry Bowen, uh, which is an organization out of Hong Kong. And um, they actually came to us originally with the idea for the support where um the, the, there's a, a team in Hong Kong, an ad agency named Gary Bowen in Hong Kong, and they wanted to create something to give back. It was a sort of a, a passion project for some of their design team to use their skills, training, and experience, not just to sell things, not just to work for big organizations, but to give back to the community. And uh, someone in the Gary Bowen team had an autistic nephew, and they wanted to do something to support the autistic community in Hong Kong. So they had some other team members who were familiar with tabletop role-playing games and reached out to us say we were already working with the autistic population in Seattle and we had gotten some good press and various online stuff such that they knew about us in Hong Kong, which is a cool feather in my cap. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and uh, so we started collaborating and it was, and Gary Bowen handled the Kickstarter, right? They were the ones who put that awesome video together. They helped us do the social posting and stuff like that. They built our mailing list to where we can have a super successful Kickstarter. Um, We also had a very supportive tweet from um matt mercer which couldn't hurt he's kind of a super famous uh game master so that helped launched us we were fully funded in eight hours which was awesome but uh the real work begins after the kickstarter is over um and that was one of those things that we had you know 10 years of experience but we didn't have 10 years of experience writing it down um and that was (laughs) that was a pretty profound learning curve there um, and then we, we brought on uh, Maya Nordrum actually as the project manager and it, it she kind of, she got our, our ragtag team of artists and, and, and crew, uh, into a, a functional team, which was really super helpful. Um, and it, it took, you know, I worked through, I think two Christmases <laughs> on this project, um, but we put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into this labor of love. And so we are, um, over the course, cause we, we, you know, we, launched it at successful Kickstarter in, in May of 2019. And mm-hmm. we, we released our digital materials last month. 
Uh, so it has been a lot of uh, behind the scenes, like I said, blood, sweat, and tears on this process so yeah, far. And, and Gavin Chang, who's yeah. done all the graphic layout, was uh, like just could not be uh, celebrated enough his contribution to the project because mm-hmm. um, it's it's I I get to talk about it, but there was a, a, a team behind it myself and Adam Johns and Virginia Spielman and um, Gavin Chang and Maya who all did a lot of contribution as well as like artists that are uh, so many artists I can't quite name. <laughs> Oh yeah, the box art that's featured on the Kickstarter page is gorgeous. It's so pretty. <laughs> I have worked in advertising, and I will say that it, uh, I usually don't have nice things to say about it. But when you, a lot of firms like marketing firms and stuff, they are desperate to do things with value, like because there's so much yeah. talent and creativity that gets put in these things, and lots of money flows through it as well. And they are all, even even when they kind of you know, uh, uh, do like, you know, dumb projects day and day. They're all good people and they want to do good things. So it's really interesting to hear that story about them, like just anxious to do something and not just for their own, like to scratch the itch, but they, they sought out experts, meaning you to make sure what they did had meaning and value and then provided all that, that the, the, their capacity to it. That is, I love that story. That's so fantastic. Yeah. So we, we just released digital, um, to Kickstarter backers recently. Um, we're sending to manufacturing. So we, that was another thing, just not my training nor anyone on our team's training how to talk to a manufacturer about paperweights and things like that. So that was a, a lot of back and forth and, and going to the paper store pre-COVID and saying, what is this paperweight? Can you hand me this so I can hold it in my hands? Because I don't conceptually understand paperweight. I can't translate paperweight on paper <laughs> uh, you know, written down into actually what it looks like to feel it in my hand. So we had to do a lot of that kind of process too. And we're still navigating some of that, having the manufacturer send you know, the trial first run kit to make sure it ha- has the right flexibility. Because I mean, I yeah. think we've all probably kickstarted games where the materials are awful and the game falls apart uh, because they didn't invest in the paperweight, but keeping in mind that paperweight turns into shipping costs and there's so many moving mm-hmm. pieces and variables there that that's been um, fantastic. Once again, to have Maya involved in that process because um, she's been uh, so helpful. Yeah. Um, but then the, the, it'll be three months or so until we do distribution um, and we are not distributing ourselves. Thank goodness. We actually are working <laughs> with a distributor out of Florida who's going to be mailing all of those kits for us. We're going to have a web store on gametogrow.org so people can purchase this. It's not live yet, uh, but we will have digital kits available for sale. So it's a PDF. All of the materials in there uh, will be the digital store might even be open by the time this gets this podcast is live. That's cool. (laughs) Write that down. down. We'll put the link in the show notes. Yes, (laughs) of course. So speaking of links, um, we will put the link to Game to Grow in our show notes. Where um, where else can listeners find out about the work that you do on the internet? So we have a website, gametogrow.org, which has everything about us, our mission, our values. Uh, it has an opportunity to join a group if you are someone who wants to get the life-enriching magic of games for yourself. Uh, we also <laughs> have a training program you can find about that. Find out more about that at GameToGrow.org as well, as well as the fact that we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So if you uh, want to make a donation, you can go there and support our mission. We are uh, about to launch some uh, hospital-based programs. We're about to launch some foster care uh, specific programming. So if that, you know, kindles your desire to support that mission, please go to GameToGrow.org slash support. Even if you just change your Amazon to smile.amazon.com, that would be a big help. Um, And then you can also find us on social media 
at at game to grow and it's game to grow not games to grow and it's not game number two grow but game <laughs> to grow like don't just game game to grow yeah awesome okay and again listeners we'll put those in the show notes um so take a look for that and that's our show Check out our website, nicegames.club, for those show notes and links to resources on today's topics and links to websites to game to grow and critical core, etc., etc. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and on our programming in general. Go to nicegames.club slash feedback and tell us what you think. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at NiceGamesClub, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and cats grabbing at pennies. Or you can email us through contact at nicegames.club. Want to support the show? There are so many ways. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about your favorite episodes. Mark, you're editing that paragraph. I can't see. Okay. (laughs) I should make the change you wanted. (laughs) Tell your friends about your favorite episodes. Join us on Discord by visiting nicegames.club slash Discord. And hey, we're on Patreon. Thanks for that edit, Mark. As a patron of the show, you'll enjoy bonus content, extra jokes, and more. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. I want to play with you, knee. I know. <laughs> this is such. I mean, a, oh, so we are getting together real in the next hour. Play some, <laughs> find a one shot we can. <laughs> in previous years, each of us pick to picked in pre because we're talking about in previous years. Pause. Yeah, it's past tense there because we're talking about what happens in previous years, right? No, because the action is we pick and explain why we picked them. That's one thing we do. Mm. It's not that we picked them. And then the second thing is we explain why we picked them. I think that here's the thing in past. Because also explain is is not past tense because it's pick and explain. We should do it a couple different ways and see if the listeners pay attention. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.